You're listening to On Mass, bringing you stories of struggle and hope from the working class. I'm your host, Liz Medina. In this special bonus episode, Professor Robert Ovetz and I will discuss case studies of working class struggle from around the world that he's collected in a new book published by Pluto Press called Workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle, Strategies, Tactics, Objectives. Professor Robert Ovetz is a lecturer in political science at San Jose State University in San Jose, California. He is also the author of When Workers Shop Back, published in 2018 by Haymarket Books. Welcome, Professor Robert Ovetz. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, um, first, uh, you know, Doing a book is always a immense labor of love, and I'm always curious what drives people to take on an immense project, such as um, editing a book or putting out a book. So could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to start this book project? Yeah, that's such a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Thank you. Um, so this is really a passion that I long had in my life, and it wasn't until really a decade ago that I really figured out, I always knew I wanted to write a book, but I never knew what it would be about. So once I discovered uh, that uh, with the first book, um, I just kind of have just been off and just loving doing this. It's, you know, like there's a lot of, a lot of alone time in uh, writing, of course, and then doing a book can be quite lengthy and there's a, a long lag time until the book actually comes out, which could be several years sometimes. Um, but it's it's really one of my passions in life right now. Um, but particularly, um, you know, what has motivated me to do these first two books is just looking around the world and realizing that um, the, the the greatest force for bringing about the long necessary change that we need to survive as a humanity and also all the the other species and the ecosystem that we're going to bring down with us, the greatest power to make that change really is the working class. And that's what really keeps me going, is looking at the role the working class has as a force of, of dramatic social and political change. Absolutely. So can you explain for those of us who may not be familiar, what is a worker's inquiry? You know, how mm. is a worker's inquiry, what's the origin of a worker's inquiry, and how is it being used in the current struggles discussed in the essays in your book? Yeah, so a worker's inquiry is... Uh, something that was originally coined by Karl Marx uh, late in his life. In fact, the last thing he ever published was a hundred question survey that uh, was published in a French newspaper. And sadly, he never got a response. Uh, but uh, the, the questions essentially covered a range of different aspects of a worker's life and work. Uh, he asked questions about where you live and the quality of your housing and your family and your neighbors and your ethnicity. Um, but he also asked about the conditions of your work, your hours, um, the rules at work, uh, pay, et cetera, right? So he saw that there was a need really to collect information about the working class, but not as a distant, isolated, separate kind of academic study, but to really try to understand uh, workers for the purpose of supporting um, how workers struggle. And of course, you know, capital is, is really just a lengthy workers' inquiry. He's he spent um, those many years looking at what the conditions of work were um, in factories, and you know, in, in to some degree in the communities um, around the factories, um, in order to understand how workers struggle. Um, so this is really something that was picked up. Um, after being forgotten, really, um, it was picked up starting in the 1950s by, uh, at the same time, by a French group and, and an Italian group. And uh, they rediscovered Marx's inquiry, uh, workers' inquiry, and they started uh, in their own workplaces and then in what today we call uh, co-research they started working with workers who were trying to organize, engage in, in various struggles, um, who studied the workplace, and they tried to understand uh, how workers are uh, organized and reorganized by the boss um, through various management strategies, and then how workers overcome those divisions um, and the internal hierarchies in order to uh, what I call recompose their struggle. So essentially they studied the class composition, 
how capital is organized in order to then understand the management strategy for imposing work and discipline and control and to break previous cycles of struggle to decompose the workers so that the workers can then figure out what taxes and strategies they can use to recompose their struggles, to come together, to, to organize in response to how they find themselves in the workplace. Um, and then from that, informing uh, what their tactics and strategies and objectives should be. Um, so a worker's inquiry is really an inquiry that workers do themselves, and they can do it in partnership with outside researchers, academic or otherwise in order to develop new tactics and strategies. And the one other thing that's important about a worker's inquiry is that it's, it's the methodology for understanding uh, what's called class composition of capital. So class composition theory is the theoretical basis and a worker's inquiry is the methodological basis of how to understand the class composition, uh, capital's technical composition, how it organizes work, and then how to respond to that in struggle. Hmm. That's a great answer. And certainly uh, Marx and Engels worked really well together in understanding the concrete conditions of the workers that informed their theory. Uh, that's a huge part of their dialectical methodology of moving from abstraction to uh, concrete reality. And, you know, I think that of anything, you know, Marx is really an empiricist and was looking and studying uh, the conditions of workers in, in tandem with uh, Engels' help, especially, and discovering, you know, the true source of a worker's value and power through the process, um, which is really important in understanding um, other theories that seek to leverage the power of the working class uh, against um, its exploiters, the capitalist class. And so you talk about, you know, class composition theory. Is there a way for you to like break that down in really simple terms for people to easily understand and, and why that's an important part of the workers inquiry. Yes. Um, and I, I, I appreciate that you're asking me to, uh, to break it down in, in terms that we can all understand because it's really crucial. It's something that we're really not doing uh, right now is we're not studying what um, essentially we call the technical composition. And these ideas come from Marx. This is essentially what Marx was doing, is you start the starting point. And this, I think of it like a, a spiral dance. So the first step is the capital technical composition. So how does capital organize the workplace? In other words, how's work organized? What are the rules and the hierarchies in work? What are the uh, types of technologies? Why are they being introduced? How do they control and shape the way that we work? So that's what we call the technical composition. So by understanding how work is organized, uh, workers can then understand why the technical composition was changed in order to decompose workers' power. In other words, how was this new management strategy introduced to defeat workers' previous cycles of struggle? So if there was a strike, in response to that strike, capital comes in, introduces new technologies, new management strategies, it outsources or insources, it uh, creates new job categories, right? All the things we know, the two-tier, three-tier systems, changes in work rules and so forth. So that's those strategies are intended to decompose workers' struggles. So now workers find themselves isolated, alienated, broken up. Previous tactics and strategies don't work anymore. So by understanding the technical composition and how it was used to decompose workers' struggle, workers using a workers' inquiry can then figure out how to recompose their struggle by developing new tactics and strategies. If the rules of work have changed, then the tactics have to change along with it. So this is what I call a spiral dance. So when workers organize and struggle, if they, if they succeed in some way, capital responds. And it changes the conditions of our work and how we relate to each other. And so we have to respond to that as well. And so it becomes this spiral dance. And each cycle of that struggle brings us to a higher level, a higher terrain where the struggle intensifies. And so if you've ever been engaged in strike-related action or collective action on the workplace, you know that the boss responds. So even if they concede, they're going to respond in some way. So you have to respond in kind in order to take your fight to the next level. Thank you. That's a, an excellent explanation. And I think uh, many workers have experienced that in some kind of way uh, in terms of, uh, 
you know, new technology being introduced to the workplace that uh, disciplines workers by um, making them more productive or uh, laying off a certain portion of workers to shrink the power, uh, their collective power in the workplace. Um, and, and as you say, management strategies too, uh, ways of incentivizing maybe certain groups of workers uh, and, and giving them concessions, maybe treating the skilled workers a little bit better than the unskilled workers to create divisions in the workplace. Uh, and we see that, of course, unfortunately play out in terms of race and gender as well. So, you know, it, and interestingly enough, one of the toughest things as a union member, trade union member, full disclosure, I am the, um, I'm also the director of the Vermont State Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and I am represented by UAW 2322, and I, I respect both these institutions and fight for them every day. But there is a, a kind of um, problematic role that unions play in uh, the management strategy of controlling uh, workers and, and suppressing class struggle, as you discuss in the book. And so you say in your introduction something really interesting that I think trade unionists would kind of wonder what uh, you meant here. I'd love for you to unpack it. You say you want to recapture the meaning of union. Uh, could you please tell us what you mean by that? <laughs> You're the first person to catch that. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the word union does not mean institution. It doesn't mean, you know, something with official members and who pay dues and they have a contract. Or not. Um, it means a body of workers who are organizing in struggle. That's what union means. It means to come together in unison, in union, uh, to fight. And so I think we have to we have to reclaim that the original meaning of that word, because remember, for centuries, um, some would even say millennia, you know, organized workers did not have formal unions, as we talk about today. In fact, in the United States, to have a formal union wasn't even legal in, in, until the Wagner Act in the 1930s, right? Um, some states allowed it a little bit earlier. Um, so a union has long longer meant just a group of workers engaged in a fight than it has meant what we think of it today. And so what I'm trying to do is, and, and I'm not alone in this, but I'm trying to focus on how workers organize themselves, how they self-organize. And that self-organization in itself is a union. And it might not last, it might be defeated. Um, many times it turns into an official union, right? They get recognized, uh, the employer concedes, um, they sign a contract, right? And we're seeing this happening in the gig sector, which I'm writing a lot about right now. Um, so these workers aren't, don't have an official union. For example, Rideshare Drivers United uh, in California, they're not officially a union, but they are a union of workers. And if we can expand our understanding of how workers organize, then we move outside of that narrow scope of union big U with quotes around it, right? And we understand all worker organization as unions. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And you just, uh, some of your authors discuss that in part two and part three, especially chapter five and chapter eight, uh, which respectively discuss unionized teachers in Mexico and miners in South Africa in particular. Uh, and, and these uh, workers responded to their trade unions that were in some ways uh, collaborating with the employers in the state to repress uh, their actions for improving their working conditions or fighting austerity. And, uh, you know, there's was serious conflict uh, between these business trade unions and rank and file workers, you know, with the case of the miners in South Africa, uh, the National Union of Mine Workers, NUM, uh, went so far as to collaborate with the state in massacring, uh, striking mine workers, if I'm recalling correctly. And so, you know, why do you think, you know, some of these uh, trade union institutions behave in such an anti-worker reactionary way? And how have uh, workers self-organized and reclaimed union, as you say, um, in order to win and fight back? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the chapters on the Mexican teachers and the and the miners and the, and the service workers in South Africa, um, because these are excellent examples where the self-organization of workers sometimes is directed not just at the boss, but also at the union itself, uh, because the union has become an institution that in some ways is is an adjunct, a, a harness 
to um, an auxiliary to capital, to the boss. Um, and this is not something that's going to sound really out of out of the world to those of you who uh, work in a unionized workplace, as I do. I'm a member of California Faculty Association in uh, the country's largest public university system, and I'm a lecturer, so I'm untenured. Um, is that the contract itself can serve as a means of discipline? That's why employers are um, are willing to actually engage in signing contracts, although we're no longer in the Keynesian era. Um, you know, unionization was really high in the U.S. and many countries around the world because of the wage productivity deals that were made um, and and institutionalized in the form of a contract. And this became the the contract became a means to um, to limit and uh, prevent workers from self organizing, um, particularly if they were disruptive uh, of uh, of the workplace. Uh, the union became uh, essentially the disciplinary agent to keep workers from engaging in self-organized struggle that was outside of the contract, um, that um, threatened the contract itself, um, and um, and that also was out of time. In other words, that, you know, collective action cannot happen until, you know, the, the, the bargaining process uh, uh, reaches full course, right? So um, the contracting unions are sanctified by labor law, and labor law becomes the means of bringing about labor peace in the workplace. So what we see in those two chapters, those two amazing uh, workers' inquiries into worker struggles, not only against the state um, and private companies, but also against the unions themselves, is that in Mexico, there's a single teachers' union, and that union was closely harnessed to the governing parties of Mexico. And so within the union, a new caucus formed, not any different than the Chicago Teachers Union and what happened there where a caucus eventually took over the union or the LA teachers. Um, and they organized within the context of the union. They were geographically concentrated. Um, and they took the fight to not just the state, but um, to the actual capitalist economy of Mexico. And they dealt with issues such as death squads and police violence, but also uh, the disinvestment and the privatization of public education. Um, and so that chapter is a great example of how uh, within unions also, these struggles to self-organize also happen. Um, and virtually every union you know, today has um, dissident members inside the union who are critical of the way that the union makes decisions or, you know, whatever the issues are or, or negotiates contracts without really paying attention to all the different elements of the needs of the workers in the workplace. So that's what was going on in Mexico. And in South Africa, in that uh, chapter, uh, the authors uh, show how uh, miners self-organized in the platinum mines um, and uh, challenged um, the, the, the dominant mine workers union uh, cutting these sweetheart deals. Um, and they went outside of the union uh, and would have these outdoor assemblies where they made decisions directly and immediately. And if they voted to strike, they would strike immediately. They didn't go, they didn't follow South Africa's labor laws at all. And so that they ran up head to head with the union which actually supported the government's uh, armed violent suppression uh, attempts to suppress the strikers. Um, in fact, the, I just got off of a meeting uh, with uh, someone who wrote a book about the Maracana strike um, to come join you for this, this talk. And um, one of the things he documents is how uh, the current president of South Africa was the president of the miners union. You just wonder how he became a billionaire, right? Um, but when uh, the workers uh, revolted against the union, the union uh, president uh, called them essentially thugs and um, and justified armed attacks that killed many dozen uh, strikers. Um, and also in that chapter, they also talk about how um, although the miners eventually won a larger pay increases than the contract would have allowed, they didn't achieve their entire goals. Uh, they also went after contingency and they demanded that all the miners be hired as uh, with the same employment status. So that's, that's going to be a very familiar issue to many of you who are listening. Um, and then what came out of that was a new approach to self-organization in South Africa 
where Workers' Center was formed and uh, workers who wanted to self-organize could go to the Workers' Center and seek advice and they would meet together and meet other workers in their sector. And so they started um, essentially autonomous self-organized unions um, around uh, several cities in South Africa. So really fantastic, uh, two fantastic examples of, of the focus of the book on uh, worker self-organization, both inside and outside of unions. Oh, and one other thing to add too is when the miners revolted against the main union, they ended up forming their own uh, union, a militant union um, that did become recognized, although not all of the miners um, joined that union. Absolutely. So worker self-organization has been very important to the history of the U.S. labor movement as well. And some of the most dynamic uh, moments in labor history were driven by uh, workers who were, you know, breaking away from the dominant uh, unions and federations at the time, such as uh, the formation of the CIO in response to the AFL's refusal to organize unskilled workers uh, back in the 30s. And, um, you know, United Electrical Workers who refused to play into the purging of the leftist leaders who were um, bringing the fight right to capital and making huge gains for their workers, uh, and not only their workers, but uh, the working class as a whole in the United States. So that kind of uh, self-organization and independence uh, in the labor movement is really important. And, uh, you know, we have to, you know, uh, leverage that if if we our own unions are not fighting for us, and um, it's also though heartening as someone who is uh, working for uh, an, an AFL union um, or the AFL CIO and represented by the UAW, an AFL affiliated union, that there is a possibility to bring reform and create reform caucuses within these um, institutions and uh, direct those resources in a way that actually serves the rank and files needs and demands. And actually, um, that reminds me of um, the really just difficult situation uh, faced by the Turkish logistics workers that you uh, that uh, Alpkin Berlema, Berlema. I'm so sorry. How I'm not sure how to pronounce um, their name, but the author in chapter two of part one um, discusses a, a Turkish logistics union, Tumutis, uh, Tumutis. Not sure how you say that either. I, I don't speak Turkish. Okay, either. okay. So it's T U M T I S. Uh, no shame here. And uh, the, uh, that chapter discusses uh, the revitalization of this, you know, class struggle unionism um, in a country in which the labor law is very much also stacked against them. And so the the author uh, describes how this union was able to leverage its power resources and uh, talks about a power resources model that uh, allowed this union uh, to, uh, to organize thousands of more workers and increase their membership. So can you tell us a little bit about what these power resources models are and how um, you know the Turkish uh, union and other unions can use those resources to revitalize their own union and labor movement more broadly? Sure. And, you know, before I, I get into Alcon's uh, chapter, um, I just want to say what, you know, your your uh, point about the history of unionization in the United States, I would even go further back before the 1920s and 30s. You know, my first book, I started in 1877. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about that some more, because I, I think that that history is something to be discovered much earlier in labor history than, than we otherwise think. So um, Alcon uh, Barrelman's uh, chapter is also another extraordinary example of essentially what happens when you get uh, a kind of class struggle unionist uh, caucus that uh, accedes to the leadership position. This was a relatively small union um, that uh, had a few kind of mid-sized and small uh, um, uh, employers organized in Turkey, but they, they were going after the big ones, uh, DHL, some global corporations. And uh, what Alpen talks about here is how um, this small union maximized its existing resources. This is an idea that came from uh, the sociologist uh, Charles Tilley, um, who um, is famous for having developed the resource mobilization model. So if you're a sociologist, that, that's a school of sociological thought. Uh, and Tilley looks at how social movements and class struggle happens, although he wasn't a Marxist. Um, 
by mobilizing resources. So that's that's where that comes from. And so what Alcon's doing in this chapter is he's looking at how this small union maximized its position, minor position in the in the logistics sector of Turkey by reaching out and getting uh, support from uh, the, the, the International Labor Confederation in the transport sector. And so they provided them with various resources um, that supported their attempt to organize DHL. And essentially the way they went about it was they kind of encircled DHL. They also got support from the German unions uh, who had uh, unionized the DHL. And they, um, they essentially um, surrounded DHL by uh, targeting its competitors. Um, and normally what we tend to think, what we hear in the United States is um, if you don't organize the big guy and you just organize the smaller ones, it gives an advantage to the bigger company. But they, they kind of blew that, that presumption up because they targeted DHL globally as well. And uh, eventually, um, by uh, being willing to engage in disruption, not necessarily strikes, they came pretty close on some big strikes, but by engaging in disruption of the entire sector, they actually had, um, they had implications for uh, who they were targeting. And eventually, they were able to get, um, they were able to, to, to bring down their target. So what he's what he's focusing on here is the use of disruptive tactics as well. So even a small union uh, can disrupt uh, the entire sector, even if they don't have the, the industry leader organized. And that's essentially the lesson that we can learn from from this really unique uh, uh, attempt to use an established small union um, in order to expand uh, worker organizing in otherwise an authoritarian country. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and so one of the other things discussed that I really appreciated in this chapter, though, it wasn't un unpacked as much. Uh, and they, the author admitted that there is a lack of research in this area within industrial labor relations. But they talk about uh, one form of as uh, associational power um, is uh, increasing member participation and internal cohesion. And one way that this Turkish Union, Tumtis, uh has increased uh, membership participation and internal cohesion is through a socialist militant leadership uh, that they mention. And so I think this is really important within the labor movement more broadly because of uh, the purging here in the United States of leftist leaders in particular. But can you tell us, you know, more generally just for, um, for the audience, you know, the role of the militant leftist um, activists, labor leaders in uh, galvanizing uh, the, the uh, class struggles and the labor movement. Yeah, so I, you know, I this is not my area of expertise in Turkey and the Turkish labor sector, um, but Alpan's chapter it really kind of speaks to me because the same issues is something that we deal with in the United States in terms of our union leadership. That one of the most common things about uh, the leadership of most of the most of the big unions in the United States is that they're very closely aligned with the Democratic Party. There's a few exceptions, but their alignment with the Democratic Party has meant that um, they're not as willing to engage in um, militant, organized, disruptive tactics. And so organizing, uh, because of course, they'll lose uh, access to the halls of government, to the ability to change labor law and implement reform and so forth. And so they, over the last few decades, have tended to de-emphasize organizing, not just members, but also bringing in new members and actually organizing them, and have shifted over to a kind of nonprofit model. And this is actually going to be the subject of one of my next books on uh, the nonprofit sector and its impact on class struggle in the United States and internationally. Um, and they've introduced uh, and, and internalized uh, essentially, the foundation-funded model that we see and uh, so commonly among nonprofit advocacy groups. In other words, mobilizing and advocacy and lobbying. And so, many of our unions have, as a result of that close alliance with the Democratic Party um, and the focus on servicing the contract, have focused mostly on uh, leaving the workplace to try to have influence on uh, on policy in government. Um, in the political sphere. And so where we see an exception to this, and you mentioned IE, 
but I would also argue in, in, with the teachers unions and also to some degree the emerging gig workers uh, unions is that they're, they're not just focusing on changing laws and policies, they're actually focused on organizing people in their sector. And then not just organizing them for the purpose of having membership, like in Bessemer, uh, with the fail, the catastrophic failure to organize Amazon workers, but they're actually organizing to have power so that they can apply leverage to the employer and extract concessions and changes. That's the difference, for example, between the self-organized workers who are organizing in Amazon warehouses in New York and Chicago and Minneapolis compared to the approach that was taken by the warehouse union in Bessemer. Two different models, leadership that understands organizing and, and, and uh, com confrontational adversarial disruptive strategies and tactics, and union leadership that attempts to use labor law, which is essentially tilted against the, work the working class uh, to try to essentially establish a formal union with member-paying, uh, dues-paying members um, in order to get to a contract two different models. And they're actually coming into conflict in a big way in the United States, the way that Alpcon shows was also happening in Turkey. Absolutely. And that's why I really appreciate learning about the power resources model. And I'd love to dive into it more, but it really goes to the heart of where workers' power lies, uh, given the uh, particular historical uh, contingencies and circumstances that they are inhab uh, inhabiting. And so, you know, it's it's not uh, deferring the power to a politician to uh, help you and giving them the power and, and asking them to do the other thing. It's not alienating your source of power uh, within the Democratic uh, Party or within the uh, political process in general, but actually uh, looking at the power of workers in the workplace, uh, in the current historical moment and other uh, situations that are happening. And and one of the forms of that power is the structural power that you talk about um, and Alpkin talks about in chapter two, which is, you know, the ability to really disrupt uh, the flow of, of, of goods, uh, which, uh, you know, the, that is really important. That's how, um, businesses realize the value of the commodities that they're producing is by shipping them to markets where they um, will uh, get a high value. And um, transportation is more important than ever in a global economy where, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> manufacturing happens all over the world. And it's just a broad network of exchange versus localized production. Um, so, you know, you talk about um, in the book, including yourself in the introductory chapter, about the strategic importance of the logistics sector in particular. It gets a whole part as a result. And the logistics sector has a particular importance, uh, if I'm correct, in, for you in combating the exploitation of workers around the world, not just those workers in that sector. Uh, and so why are logistic workers so potentially powerful in our current stage of capitalist development? That's such a fantastic question. And, and I have to start by saying the sad thing is not enough of, our, of us are asking this question of why is logistics important, not just for capitalism, but for actually workers' struggles. And the answer is really the same. Logistics are crucial to capital's ability to move people, goods, and finance almost instantaneously, right, um, on demand. And that means that because capital is now global, and I would even argue that capitalism has been global for centuries, but recent technologies of the last 30, 40 years have, have sped that up dramatically so that goods and people and finance can actually move almost instantaneously on demand. And what that means is that we need to adapt. So using class composition theory, we need to do an inquiry, a global inquiry into the global organization of capital to find where the weak points are, where the leverage points are, and apply pressure at those key points. And that's why I started the book with the focus on logistics, because these three chapters really demonstrate how in very local situations in Turkey and in, uh, in Italy, and also in Argentina, uh, 
new approaches to organizing workers and even a reinvigoration of existing unions have discovered that very well-organized workers, or what labor scholars call uh, with high levels of structural power, um, can apply pressure at key choke points. And this is what also labor scholars call disruptive power. And these ideas come from an Italian sociologist by the name of Luca Peroni, who died tragically young, but his works were translated into English back in the 1980s um, and are pretty much the dominant uh, ways that labor scholars talk about the different types of power that workers have. Now, what gets ignored here, though, and I'm glad you brought up structural power, because essentially that tells us what is the position of workers within a workplace? And that workplace can be integrated nationally or globally, right? A global corporation or it's connected in the logistics stream up and down somewhere up and down the stream. But what we've underemphasized is something that Wilson and, and Ness in their book Choke Points that came out about six years ago um, in the same series that my book is part of. Um, they emphasize this underemphasized aspect of Peroni's ideas, and that is that structural high levels of structural power gives workers high levels of disruptive power. So let's rewind a little bit. You asked, why is the global supply chain so crucial? Because that's where most of our power lies. By understanding how capital is organized at the global level, we can understand its weakest points. And we're just not doing that. Um, and that applies even if your struggle is local or it's you're, you're organizing within a national company or a statewide employer. Um, every workplace is integrated into the global economy somehow. And understanding that supply chain, that small part of the larger supply chain, if you understand how it works, you can find points where even a minority of organized workers, a minority number, not minority in terms of ethnicity or race, but a minority of the workers in that workplace, if they're well organized, can actually apply pressure and extract concessions. Now, you wonder, why are we not talking about that, right? And I want to give you a few examples where um, that illustrate that some workers are starting to use this kind of strategy. Um, I, like I mentioned a little while ago, I'm writing about gig workers. And I'm writing a chapter for a book on gig workers. And one of the most interesting things is that we think Uber and Lyft are these huge, powerful global corporations, right? They're worth billions. Um, and we think, how can... Workers who are considered contract freelancers who have to buy their own car, how could they have any influence on how these companies function? And back in 19, 2019, 2020, there were various strikes of gig workers, not only in California, but also in New York and around the world in a number of different countries. And when Uber and Lyft launched their initial public offering of their shares, one of the things they both warned about in their initial uh, public offering was that strikes and disruption by drivers could threaten the survival of their companies and the value of their shares. So even a small number of just a few thousand workers striking in California on the eve of Uber's initial public offering really put the fear of death into that company. And I want to emphasize that because these workers understood that if they could be disruptive, they could damage the viability of this of this brand new company. And so these workers were very smart and strategic about how they organized and how they applied pressure just enough that the company felt it. Absolutely. Uh, that's a great example. And um, I, we're going to circle back a little bit more to teasing out disruptive power because uh, that's. It relates to one of the most powerful tools in labor's toolbox, the strike, uh, which we need to talk about more as well, because uh, logistics is um, so underappreciated. And I'm wondering if you would agree with me. Do you think that the recent example of dock workers, including U.S. dock workers represented by the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, ILWU, Local 10, and uh, the South African Transport and Allied Workers, S-A-T-A-W-U, refusing to unload cargo from Israel is a good example of logistics workers leveraging their revolutionary potential. Yes and no. Um, yes, because they are at a key choke point. 
And, um, and in fact, the ILWU has a long history of using that power. They're very aware of how critical their power is in the global supply chain. And, and in part, the employers have figured that out, too, because a lot of that sector has been automated, especially since the big general strike on the West Coast back in the 1930s. Um, but as a result of a wage productivity deal that ILWU did back in the 1950s, they've essentially... Uh, gave up control over work in exchange for being very well paid and having very good working conditions uh, and control uh, has passed over to the companies, which automated a lot of that sector. So now you have these massive cranes doing the work that used to be done by hundreds of people. So yes and no, uh, these companies demonstrated exactly what I'm talking about. Um, unfortunately, when it's done for symbolic purposes or for a time-limited period, it doesn't have as much of a disruptive effect. And here's why. The employer can just go to another port so they can bypass them. So I think it's great because it demonstrates what I'm talking about, but it doesn't really have much long-term impact if it's done in a symbolic and limited way. Absolutely. If more workers don't, uh, especially in the logistics sector, act in solidarity and, and um, also refuse to do so, it would remain a limited and a struggle that doesn't have the potential to fundamentally change the situation for Palestinian workers, unfortunately. I, I, I would agree with that assessment, though I think, you know, as always, whenever workers begin to exercise their power, even if it's in a ultimately symbolic way, I, I think that's an important exercise, uh, especially in the, these current times where we have, as the labor movement is, at least in the United States, and seemingly elsewhere from this book, deferred so much of our power to representatives within union staff, uh, leaders and, and politicians. So Right. Right. And one other thing, too, is many contracts also prohibit uh, strikes. Um, and so it's very and it's very difficult when different workers who are essentially in the same sector have different contracts with different expiration dates. Um, that's a situation we face in higher education. So it's very difficult to take um, coordinated action at the same time, which would have a which would amplify the impact. Exactly. A lot of contracts are staggered when they expire, even within the same union. I, I don't want to call anybody out uh, at this moment, but I had a recent conversation with a, a union member um, who belonged to uh, a national union uh, that had a master contract and local contracts, and they were uh, created and crafted in such a way, both of which had no strike clauses, of course. And uh, the master contract and the local contract were crafted in such a way that they never had the power to legally strike. Um, because the uh, the local contract would expire, but then the master contract would still be in effect for four years, and then the, and then on and on and on, and you know they haven't had a, a strike as a result in you know decades. Um, so yeah, absolutely, it's it's a huge issue. Um, and nevertheless, Lynn, whether we can strike legally or not, um, strikes are fund uh, a, a very powerful disruptive uh, tool in in uh, and power resource, if I may, uh, of the work of workers. And um, you found in one of your chapters that strike threats, um, even in this really difficult environment all around the world of, of really repressive labor law, um, strike threats have been increasing, at least between uh, 2012 and 2016, uh, that you, the period you studied in your book. So we certainly hear more about strikes these days, finally. Uh, but what makes a strike threat credible? Mm. Yeah, so this is the chapter that I authored, so that I wrote myself. And so I, I did some work uh, with a research assistant uh, with a very small grant. We essentially scoured five years of uh, databases, uh, publications. Uh, we did interviews, a uh, few interviews. Um, we did a survey. Um, uh, and we ended up with respondents from uh, several dozen sectors in the U.S., and we looked for any uh, threat uh, to go on strike. And they didn't have to be official. They could just be, you know, strike preparations. Um, now we're hearing a lot more. There's actually, thankfully, somebody is actually documenting this every week. Uh, who gets the bird? I don't know if you've heard of that new newsletter. It's Jonah Furman is doing my work for me. He's now documenting who's threatening to strike. Um, and uh, I set up a website also uh, where you can report uh, your own strike threat as well. And if you're interested in that, um, you can go to um, 
uh, sideways slash strike threats.org. And um, I'll, I'll be reporting these periodically. So essentially a strike threat is um, preparations to strike that are credible not only to the employer, but also to the rest of the workers in the workplace. Now, we have the problem where a lot of strike threats are made from above. You know, they're staff driven or a very small core of worker activists, um, you know, engage in various forms of collection, collective action in preparation to strike. Um, and it could be verbally made or not. Now, what makes a strike threat credible? And just so, just to be clear, I only documented the number of strike threats uh, from 2012 to 2016. And I found an extraordinary uh, result. And that is that, um, and we know there's all kinds of problems with the Bureau of Labor Statistics reporting on the number of strikes. For example, they don't report any strikes in a workplace with fewer than 1,000 workers. So they're really only covering half a percent of all employers, right? So those numbers are purposefully manufactured to be lower than they really are. But they don't count strike threats. I asked them to, and they rejected me. Um, so um, what, I, what we found was um, in uh, workplaces of all sizes, in the United States, we found that about um, we found about 100% more workers were engaged in strike-related activity during that five-year period, and there were about 37% more strike threats than there were strikes uh, during that five-year period. So there was much more strike-related activity going on during that five-year period. So what makes a strike threat credible? So employer has to realize that. Um, if the strike was to happen, it would be costlier than settling by giving in to some of the or all the concessions that workers are demanding now. So um, if the and so how does an employer know this? How does how do the other workers know that going on strike is a, a real credible threat is are the workers very well organized. You know, Jane McAlevey's done a lot of work on this. She calls them uh, structure tests. And essentially it draws on the ideas of a structure test. Do you have the supermajority of workers who are making public commitments and engaging in, in tactical escalation of actions leading to a strike? Do you have a strike fund? Um, do you have widespread public support? So um, both uh, public acknowledged support within the workplace of the supermajority of workers who are engaged in taking action in which the intensity is rising, this tells an employer, hey, I better settle this now because if it goes to a strike, um, it could be very costly and disruptive. The other thing that's important here is that a credible strike threat is also when is more credible, the level of credibility is higher, I should say, when the strike is open-ended. And when there's a strike fund, because if you say we're going to go on strike next Tuesday for an hour, it's not very credible. The employer can just sit back, have an extra long lunch and you're back at work. Right. Or they can hire, you know, replacements. Right. Or they can just shut down for the hour. Right. So um, a credible strike threat has to have a level of disruptive power, because if the employer can just wait it out and you go back to the table, they can offer you the same thing or even less. Because now they know that there's a kind of sense of defeat among the workers. We did it. We went on strike, but we didn't get anything out of it. Um, so um, I think strike threats are emerging and they're a lot more widespread than we realize. And I think they're really important because this is where workers are really forcing their unions to take action and saying, look, we need to do something, not just engage in the same old collective bargaining behind closed doors. We need to prepare. We need to organize. And I think we're seeing we're seeing an increase, not just in strikes, but I think we're seeing an increase in strike threats. Yeah, absolutely. I And I know it's hard to track those numbers. So I appreciate the creative ways in which uh, you and others have uh, tried to track that important data information and see, you know, its relationship to actual outcomes for, for workers. And uh, I love that this chapter is like a, a way of you doing militant research, as you describe, on your own union, uh, CFA, and, and its strike threat. And, and you talk in this chapter that ultimately um, that uh, your strike threat, threat um, with the California Faculty Association, correct, um, wasn't uh, in the end credible. And uh, because of that, perhaps, uh, the outcome of that struggle was a little disappointing. You weren't able to get as high of a wage increase and, and other things as well. So, you know, can you maybe unpack for us for some like some lessons about, you know, what went wrong in, in making that strike threat credible to the universities and how uh, it could have been maybe done better? 
Yes. So thank you for that. So in 2016, uh, my union, the California Faculty Association, threatened to strike. And um, I, at the time, because I'm a contingent lecturer, I taught on two of the campuses. So my analysis of our strike threat is limited to my experience being involved in the strike-related uh, preparations. And what I found essentially was that we didn't meet the criteria um, that I just talked about of what makes a strike credible to not only the workers, but also the employer. Um, for example, our main rallying cry was fight for five fight for 5%. I don't know about you, but that's not a very uh, motivating, passion-inspiring uh, demand. Um, now, of course, um, before I got to the CSUs, there had been pay cuts and pay had been frozen for years. So for some folks, getting 5% um, is, is quite satisfactory. The outcome, of course, was that um, there was a, a 12 to 14% increase over a three-year period for settling um, uh, on a new contract. However, um, it was incredible in many ways because on both the campuses where I was involved, there was far from a majority expression of support. Uh, for example, there was no picket line at one of the campuses and at the other one, we didn't even have enough people to cover picket lines during the, the limited period that, that the campus was supposed to be on strike. And there were many other examples that um, really led me, I, I developed what I call a credible strike threat scorecard. And I, I graded um, our strike threat at, at about 28% out of 100. So it was extremely low. And there's a lot, I have dozens of different factors that I scored in there. And ultimately, I think um, the outcome in itself is a demonstration of the lack of, credible, of, a, of a credible strike threat. Uh, like I said, we ended up with about a 12 to 14% increase in differs depending on your status. Um, but we, we didn't deal with the issues of work control or conditions at all. So productivity increased, and that essentially paced the, 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 the rise in pay. And so it was essentially a wash in the end. And the system knew that um, because they could see that there really wasn't uh, much uh, organizing or successful organizing except on a, a couple of campuses. And out of a 23-campus system, um, that doesn't make for a credible strike threat. It would not have had a disruptive impact. Um, and so the strike was uh, was called off just a few hours before it was supposed to start. Yeah, thank you for that. And I really liked uh, reading through your credible strike scorecard. Uh, it asked really pertinent questions that really help what, uh, someone think through, like, how much uh, power do we actually have to carry this out? And, and, and it gives you really just a checklist of, of what various conditions are or are not in place um, and how they may affect uh, your power and your leverage. And so, um, you know, to be uh, a militant researcher yourself, this uh, Credible Strike uh, uh, scorecard uh, is quite useful, and I will certainly link to it uh, in the show notes and on the website. And so you, you talk about militant research in general, and this scorecard is one way for someone to maybe perhaps do militant research in their workplace. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what militant research is and uh, what is a militant researcher and how can we practice militant research inside and outside of the workplace? Yeah, and I, I would direct you to read the last chapter by Lorenza Monaco about this. Um, it's the focus of her chapter on her work uh, engage in uh, what she calls Milton co-research with auto workers in both India and in Brazil, and um, and also Anna Curcio's chapter on logistics workers in Italy. Um, both of these uh, um, uh, authors are um, very much at the forefront of doing Milton co-research, and so a Milton co-researcher is essentially somebody who is outside of a particular workplace who is working with workers who are either organizing or want to get organized in order to carry out a worker's inquiry. It's worker-driven. So the workers identify what their priorities are. The workers develop the inquiry together based on what their needs are. And the militant co-researcher works with them to provide these kinds of, I would say, skills and expertise, but without being in charge of it. So they're 
a co-researcher with the workers. And this is this goes back to the approach that was used by the Italians and the and the French researchers that I talked about earlier, who rediscovered Marx's workers' inquiry approach. They really developed this approach. Um, I'm a little bit different. I don't engage in co-research. I do research where I'm already working, and I use it uh, as part of my own work as a worker organizer. So I I use it. Uh, I use the workers' inquiry approach in the work that I'm doing wherever I'm located, um, whatever my workplace is. I started doing this back when I was a graduate student, um, when I, I put my uh, focus on the university as a multinational corporation. Uh, so uh, Milchenko research essentially is uh, workers uh, collaborating with academic or non-academic um, militant researchers um, to learn how to carry out a class composition uh, analysis of their workplace to inform tactics and strategies and objectives. Excellent. Thank you for that. And uh, yes, you mentioned um, in other chapters how you, it can be a co-research, uh, you know, with a researcher coming in from the outside who's not part of the workplace uh, and helping with that as well. And in fact, in chapter three, you did uh, mention Anna Curzio um, discussing this co-researcher, militant co-researcher model and how uh, the Italian logistics workers in Po Valley uh, used this method to uh, combat the prevalence of racism and sexism in the Italian uh, logistics sector, um, which is one way to, you know, link back to our earlier conversation of management strategies to decompose working power. Uh, these, uh, you know, forms of hate and oppression are used to divide and, and conquer the working class and have been used for a very long time and they're used everywhere, unfortunately. So, um, you know, what I really loved about, can you like maybe talk a little bit about how that co-researcher worked and um, how uh, fighting uh, racism and sexism in Po Valley uh, was, you know, a way for them to actually build unity and worker power in the workplace? Yeah, so um, what Anna writes about in her chapter is about how um, in this one uh, company uh, that was in the uh, logistics sector in the Po Valley in Italy um, had a workforce that was primarily composed of immigrant women workers, um, and they had been divided based on what country they were from and um, and various language barriers. And to overcome that, Anna was involved as in, she's not an academic, she's an independent uh, militant scholar. Uh, she worked with a core group of worker organizers in that warehouse um, to reach across those different boundaries and be able to uh, make connections uh, with other groups of workers who were not really coordinated with each other and were actually in some ways uh, in conflict with one another. One of the values that she brought into that um, workers' inquiry as well, and they eventually uh, went on strike um, and they achieved national attention, and um, but uh, and they eventually won their strike and um, changed the company's policies um, that prevented them from pitting workers, particularly men and women, and women from different countries and ethnicities against each other. It was kind of like I, when I when I started reading her chapter, I thought of the way that the Wobblies would organize. Uh, the IWW would organize workers a century ago who all spoke 20 different languages in the same workplace and overcome those kind of divisions. Um, but one of the things that Anna really focused on, too, as, a, as an outside co-researcher was that she made connections for these immigrant women workers that they otherwise wouldn't have. For example, they connected with students who were supporting campus workers who were going on strike in different universities. Um, and she was also able to connect them with uh, the mainstream media, which reported quite a bit on their strikes um, in that sector as well. And eventually, because of their success, um, one of the uh, larger independent uh, militant unions in Italy decided that they would uh, back them and start organizing that sector. Um, and so uh, those workers self-organized. They overcame those divisions of race and gender um, and they were able to throw that company back on its heels and win some of their demands. Um, so it's it's quite an extraordinary um, workers' inquiry into a, a a single employer in the in the logistics sector. Yeah, it was an incredible chapter. It was very exciting to read. I haven't uh, seen uh, or read of many examples of independent researchers coming into 
uh, work with uh, organized and unorganized workers um, to uh, really help them with their struggles in the workplace versus just uh, studying them like an active uh, researcher in that sense, um, really helping them figure out what they can do to turn things around. So, you know, at the end of your book, you talk about the need for a global workers inquiry. You know, why do we need a global workers inquiry and how can rank and file workers help to build one? Yeah, I think this is really the uh, the the urgent need that needs to be met um, is we need to essentially take what I attempted to contribute to uh, by assembling these nine workers inquiries uh, from nine countries and four continents really is a, is just a small step forward because uh, capital and the working class are engaged in this dynamic struggle. uh, These inquiries are almost outdated as soon as they come out. Um, but they give us a little snapshot in time of, of how capital is organizing these different places. And what we need to do is take this to a global level and be able to carry out these inquiries a lot faster so that they can inform different workers in different places simultaneously. Now, there is some of that that's going on. Um, I, found about it, I found out about it after I had already pretty much finished this book. But there's a network, for example, of Amazon workers. I talked about some of these workers. Um, you probably heard about them. They went on strike in a Chicago warehouse the same day that the, that the warehouse workers union lost the vote in Bessemer, Alabama. And uh, one of the webinars that I organized with uh, other uh, uh, Pluto Wildcat Press authors was the book on, uh, on organizing at Amazon. Um, And uh, we had this extraordinary exchange between Amazon workers in New York, Chicago, Spain, Italy, and Poland during one of those webinars. I encourage you to to watch it. You can watch it on YouTube. And what appears to be going on, from what I understand, um, is that these Amazon workers are carrying out their own inquiries. And they're informing their tactics and strategies at the local level and regional levels in these different countries and coordinating their efforts with one another. So they're garing, they're taking simultaneous action um, among uh, in two continents, among a number of different countries against the world's largest company. And that's why a, a global workers inquiry is needed so that what is happening inside of Amazon can be amplified and replicated through all the different sectors of the capitalist economy. Um, because the reality is that capital is organized globally and it's coordinated, although there's internal divisions and fights um, between different companies and so forth. The working class is not anywhere near organized globally. And until we until we do that and a worker, a global workers inquiry can be one of the methods for doing that, we're going to continue to get our asses kicked. And we know we're getting our asses kicked. I don't have to repeat that for your audience. Um, but we need a global strategy to match a global economic system that we're fighting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, uh, really jazzed up about that prospect. I'm definitely going to look at that webinar with the various Amazon workers from around the world and link to that. Uh, Sounds like a global workers inquiry in process right there. Uh, If I may, you know, how does this global perspective of Amazon workers, for instance, uh, across the world, uh, sharpen our strategy and tactics at the local level and within local struggles? Well, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, local struggles that are coordinated globally will have the greatest disruptive impact. And and that's why I think, for example, um, you know, the, the example I gave earlier about Rideshare Drivers United. You know, they primarily went on strike in 19, um, 2019 in the Southern California area. And um, from what I can tell, they had about 5,000 or so drivers involved. I may be off a few thousand there. Um, but they, they rattled that company. And they um, linked up. There's also a global network of rideshare drivers and food delivery gig workers. And they linked up and they coordinated their local actions so they were happening in a number of countries simultaneously, Nigeria and the UK and South Africa and India, these gig workers were 
taking strike-related action at the same time. And um, for some of the most vulnerable workers who unions think are unorganizable, that demonstrates to us that there's great capacity that we haven't even begun to realize. And a worker's inquiry can be a methodology for really understanding what, how do we build that capacity and how do we identify the tactics and strategies that can work. And, and just to kind of uh, piggyback on my answer to your last question is that there is a, a network of those, uh, those of us who are doing workers' inquiries um, and we share our efforts and, you know, we, we haven't been able to meet, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. Um, but um, if you're somebody who uh, is interested in learning about this or already does workers' inquiries uh, to get in touch, because um, we do coordinate uh, across a number of different countries um, it, with our work. Wonderful. How could we get in touch with you? Oh, uh, so you can look me up on the internet um, and find my email almost anywhere. Um, I'd rather not just give it on the podcast, but my last name is O-V-E-T-Z. Uh, I use Twitter. Um, so my handle is at O-V-E-T-Z Robert, at O-V-E-T-Z Robert. Wonderful. I, I just want to thank you again for taking the time today and for editing this phenomenal book. It was uh, empowering to read because as a labor union member, as a worker in the context of, of uh, U.S. politics and labor law, uh, it it's, can feel very disempowering. It feels like we just have to keep on calling our senators or legislators, and that's all we can do. And we're just um, bound by these contracts that don't let us exercise uh, our fundamental power resources, including the disruptive power of the strike. And uh, it just feels like, oh, there's just no way out of this. Uh, but you here have, you know, a bunch of essays um, that discuss examples of workers around the world who have organized and won in incredibly challenging conditions, uh, conditions that are even more challenging than the conditions we currently have here in the United States. So, um, you know, I strongly encourage all my listeners to pick up a copy. Uh, they can order it online. It's a Workers' Inquiry and Global Class Struggle by Professor Robert Ovetz. And uh, Professor Robert Ovitz, um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, um, I do do some mini workers' inquiries um, with a colleague uh, who's an independent Milton co-researcher. His name's Gifford Hartman. Um, and so if you uh, join me for one of those talks, um, you, can, you can practice doing a workers' inquiry. Um, so I do do those. And, um, and also, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to... Uh, meet with anybody who wants to try to do one in their workplace. I'm happy to help you. So uh, I encourage everyone to get in touch with